Hello and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by micro.blog. I'm Simone de Rochefort, supervising video producer at Polygon, and I'm here with Brianna Wu, executive director of Rebellion Pack. It's just the two of us tonight. It is. It is. Uh, Christina is secretly Batgirl, and she is off mm. uh, saving Gotham, I do believe. You know that we're rolling right now. Oh, oh, shoot. No. Oh, shoot. Oh, oh no, no. Brie, you're in so much trouble. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, everyone out there, you don't want to like out Christina as Batgirl. That's, no, that's a bad day yeah. for you. Obviously, Jim, Jim will fix it in post. Jim will fix it. There are no uh, supervillains that listen to Rocket, actually. I know this. I, all Rocket listeners are heroes. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody is going to leak Christina's secret identity as Batgirl um, on Twitter or Mastodon or micro.blog. Or anywhere else. Uh, we have a, a great show for you tonight, as always. I think I say that every week. Guess what? We we have a great show. It's finally true this week. It's finally true. <laughs> this is the one. This is our most professional week yet. Uh, we are going to be talking about what else but the Silicon Valley Bank collapse with special guest Elizabeth Lopato. And then Brianna and I are going to talk about how the moon isn't real. <laughs> that It's true, everyone. The moon is fake. Um... Finally, we will be holding space at the very end of the show to let Brianna talk about Scream Six. Oh my God! <laughs> Which I've just seen came out in theaters. Four times. Stop! It literally just came out Friday. I'm sick. I've got a problem. Oh my God. I, I, I'm excited to hear your thoughts. And for our boosters, our subscribers uh, who have visited relay.fm slash membership and support the show directly, who get an ad-free uh, show and a special bonus segment, uh, we are going to be talking about The Last of Us, uh, which just finished its first season this week. Um, I was uh, scolded on WhatsApp a few weeks ago for not having watched it. I then did watch it because I had time. That being said, I haven't watched the finale, but I am obviously will we'll be full spoilers out. Uh, so sorry for you boosties who are not caught up. Um, but if you are, tune into that. It's going to be the a great- The game came out so long ago. That's I, the thing. I, I, uh, I think it's fair game. I feel that way as well. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But first- Let's get to today's main topic. All right, our first topic today is no surprise to anyone who has been online or reading any kind of news over the last week. We are talking about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and we have a very, very special guest to help us discuss that, and that person is Elizabeth Lopato, senior writer at The Verge, my colleague who I have never met or spoken to before today. <laughs> um, she literally wrote The Verge's explainer on what the heck is going on, and I cannot think of a, a more ideal person to have as our guest to discuss what the heck is going on. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It's uh, It's been one heck of a weekend. 
Oh my gosh. So depending on which uh, Twitter accounts you're following, you know, if you read David Sachs, you're reading that the the stress happened because of, um, uh, I guess, hating venture capitalists online. And I think if you follow other Twitter accounts, they're blaming it on like the dismantling of Dodd-Franks. Uh, and then if you read the Wall Street Journal, they're saying it's because this bank went woke, apparently, because they had <laughs> a black person there, uh, which I was very surprised. Um, so I guess just just please tell us, like, can you help me cut through this noise? Because hand to God, I genuinely mean this. I've read like at least five articles and all of them are blaming different factors. I've seen like four or five videos on this and I truly cannot put my finger and say this is why all of this happened. So can you kind of break down for people what's going on and help us understand like what are the major variables here? Sure. Well, it's sort of a complex situation. Okay. Um, Uh I think it helps. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's why you're getting different explanations. There isn't actually like a very, very simple thing to say. So I'm going to back up a little bit, give you a little bit of history on Silicon Valley Bank and who it's banking, because that turns out to be super relevant to the thing that happened. Um, Now, one of the things about startups uh, is that they don't have a lot of cash. And so... um, If you're looking to take out debt and you are, let's say, a 23-year-old with a world-beating idea that you're, you know, coming up with and whatever, like, gross post-college housing you're living in, you don't have a house that you can put up as collateral for a loan for your startup. And so historically, what Silicon Valley Bank has been very good at doing is offering risky loan products to risky startups um, you know, and and they've been doing this for about 40 years now. Uh, it was founded in 1983 after a poker game. Yeah. And um, yeah, right. Uh, if there's one thing I know about Wall Street and about VCs is that they all love poker. Um, <laughs> I have so figure. many questions about the poker game, but continue your explanation. <laughs> so a lot of what this bank does is it specializes in these kinds of companies that are often considered too risky for a mainstream bank. And so that might mean that they can uh, give you products like you've just gotten your first like venture capital funding and you can use that to secure a loan with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, there are other kinds of products that they offer that are a little bit more exotic, but these kinds of things are important for the startup economy and for a lot of really small businesses. Because the thing that I do want to emphasize here, a lot of people have been talking about this as a tech bank, and it is, uh, also banks biotech, um, but they are small businesses. Like this is not, mm. we're not talking Facebook, Google, we're talking like people who have just started their businesses. Um, now, sometimes those things grow into very big businesses and that's lovely, but like by and large, you're, you're, we're, not ta- we're not talking about big tech here. We are talking about little tech. Can I ask a super quick, just clarifying question, just so I can understand this as we're going? So if it's aimed at startup people, this was, I, I believe this is right, the 18th largest bank in the United States. 16th. 16th. How do you explain that differential if it's uh, primarily like aimed at, at startups? Like There are a lot of startups in Silicon Valley, but like 16th largest bank in the United States. What, what makes the majority of those holdings, if you don't mind me asking? Well, so some of the things are literally startups. That is a Mm -hmm. significant portion of their business. But because they bank so many startups, they wind up banking a bunch of people who are associated with startups as well. So VC funds, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, executives at 
at some of these companies. There's like a lot of sort of an ecosystem around Silicon Valley Bank, which is also, by the way, a regional bank. Mm-hmm. So it's um, also I know. should perhaps mention Vox Media's bank, as we all enjoyed we learning all know. last week. Yeah, that was that was Friday morning was me um, <clears throat> um, frantically messaging some of our own internal folks like, so uh, how are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, Continue. Uh, so, you know, there is like um, a very much an appetite for that kind of risk at Silicon Valley Bank. And it's something that they specialized in for a very long time. Um, I think one of the things that's also maybe worth mentioning here, um, besides, you know, tech execs who are banking there and the 2,500 VC firms that were banking there, um, is that, you know, it's uh, it's also got infrastructure that's used by companies. So like there was a payroll service company called Rippling that had to tell its customers that some of the paychecks weren't going to come on time because they were using Silicon Valley Bank to send them. Mm. Um, and this is all, like, the reason I'm, I'm giving you all of this wind up is that we're going to talk about the FDIC insurance. And ordinarily FDIC insurance limits are um, $250,000. A lot of lot there was a lot more money in that bank over those insurance limits. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason uh, this all happened. Um, and I, I want to say there were I saw a lot of people who were saying, "Well, shouldn't you like keep all of your money in different banks so that you have like access to all of this insurance?" <laughs> and the reality is, if you have ever run payroll, you know that that's actually not um feasible. feasible that's like, yeah. it's not a good way to pay people so there are like real world reasons why people were doing stuff that seems risky in hindsight and like i i'm not going to try to pretend that all of the risk here was well managed or that like um you know the duration duration mismatch we saw in assets was a great idea i just want to say that there are reasons why people take these risks and they make sense at the time and mm-hmm. looking back you say oh this is <laughs> that was stupid but it didn't seem stupid when people were making these decisions. Mm-hmm. So one of the things about banking startups is that um, you're very sensitive to the startup world. And uh, again, to zoom out for a minute, we had very low interest rates for like the last 10 plus years, pretty much since the financial crisis. And low interest mm-hmm. rates means that there's a lot of money sloshing around because you can't really park your money anywhere safe and get returns like you lose spending power. So you wound up seeing all these things like SPACs, you wound up seeing a lot of IPOs, you saw a lot of startups, you saw a lot of, you know, sort of risk entering the market because risk is how you make money. Um, This is part of the reason these guys all like poker. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Risk is how you make money. Um, And so when um, the Fed started raising rates, that changed things. And so if you think about what a startup is, um, there's often a lot of cash burn. Um, So you get your, your... you know, your A round, your series A round, and you have this money in the bank, but you Mm -hmm. don't, you're not making your product yet. And so you're just drawing down your capital to continue paying people, continue, you know, paying for software expenses, whatever other expenses you may have. I know this feeling running a game studio. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So there is, there is this period of you just drawing down money. Um, And what's happened in the sort of immediate um, financial situation around the 2020 um, COVID crisis was that interest rates went to practically zero and we had the money printer going burr and a lot of startups raised. 
And so there was this huge influx of deposits to this bank. Um, and the bank was like, okay, well, but we need to make money. So we're going to buy some pretty safe long-term securities and park the money there. Um, because Great. I want to be clear, this isn't like the 2008 where there was like some sort of exotic mortgage product, whatever. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> these were actually pretty good securities. Yeah. My understanding from reading about this for two days, like this is what banks do. They get their money and then they have to invest it somewhere so that they yeah. can yeah, make more money. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Normal. Um, good. And so what they had done is they had bought uh, all of these relatively safe securities and then the interest rates started rising. And uh-oh. that meant that this, yeah, uh-oh. So that means two things. Um, first, they were exposed to interest rates through the people they were banking because all of these startups were not raising as much cash anymore. And so they were starting to burn more of their money rather than continually putting in more money. You know, VC financing slowed down. Um, you know, IPOs slowed down. SPACs slowed down. Like all mm-hmm. of these things that had resulted in big deposits slowed. Um, and you're seeing people draw down their capital. And at the same time, those um, longer term securities, the things that they bought that were relatively safe in order to hopefully make some money, they were worth less money. So they had they had interest rate risk on both sides of their balance sheet. Mm. OK, not great. But we're still not in like a crisis because a lot of banks are actually experiencing something relatively similar. I think there was a list of about 20 banks actually that was circulating at one point that are that have similar exposures. Um, the problem is if you bank Silicon Valley is that Silicon Valley is a very small town. And so everybody knows everybody. Right. A lot of the same VCs sit on the same boards. You know what I mean? So Ooh. if one person, and let's say it's Peter Thiel, um, <laughs> although Founders <laughs> Fund has come out and said that he wasn't involved in the decision. But if one person panics, it's very easy for everybody else to also panic. So what right. ended up happening was we had this sort of wobbly moment um, and the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank came out to reassure everybody and did it really poorly. Mm. And after that, um, there started to be these VC memos like, pull your money, pull your money. And then you had a good old fashioned bank run. And that was what took out the bank. But I'm dumb. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so here, uh, can, I hope I can ask a couple of technical questions. Sure. So, yeah. so from my understanding, some of the securities that they've had this invested in, this is tied to inflation. Am I correct to understand that? Because they they invested in, say, treasury bonds and they had a certain, you know, yield on it. And then, uh, you know, obviously with inflation, it's not so good a deal. So you sell it early. Um, you know, that obviously creates a liquidity crisis. Is there is there li- validity to that um, argument? You're shaking your head, so maybe not. No. <laughs> yeah. So these, I think they had meant to hold these bonds to maturity. Okay. Um, you know, like a lot of this stuff was meant to be held to maturity. Um, the problem was that people were drawing cash so fast, much faster okay. than they had anticipated, mm-hmm. that they were sort of essentially forced to sell at a loss because those bonds are worth less than they were meant to be Right. Um, if you're selling them. But if you're holding them to maturity, it doesn't matter. The problem yeah. is they couldn't hold them to maturity because they hadn't correctly thought about how fast the cash would burn. Okay. So this is the real question I wanted to ask you today. So 
One of the reasons, as I understand it, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, because uh, you've reported this out, but I've heard that you know Silicon Valley Bank repeatedly went uh, with Dodd-Franks, and for people that are fortunate enough to not know, this was the, the legislation we passed in the aftermath of the 2008 uh, financial collapse. Um, they said, like, look, we are not an institutional bank. You know, we are not required, like, we are not so necessary for the functioning of the United States banking system that if we were to collapse, um, it would be a systemic risk. Um, but then it seems like they did. And then, um, you know, they, they'd been saying the whole time, like, Dodd-Frank does not need to apply to us, uh, so we can not have these regulations apply to us. Um, but then as soon as they failed, it seems like the venture capitalists and a whole bunch of other people came forward. And it was, you know, they were claiming that they were a, uh, a necessary bank, that they were too big to fail. Is that accurate or is that not accurate? I think that there are several things happening at the same time. And the first is that VCs are often talking their books, which is sort of (laughs) slang for like, you know, they're like hyping their thing. And so all of the VCs who are screaming on Twitter about this being a systemic risk, maybe um, bank runs tend to beget other bank runs. And, you know, I think part of the problem here is that we had a bank failure two days before Silicon Valley Bank. Right. So there had already been a bank run. So people were primed to do another one. You know what I mean? They were excited. They were ready. (laughs) They are very contagious. So I don't know that it's necessarily wrong to say that there was systemic risk, but I also don't know that it's necessarily right. Okay. Because it depends on what you mean by systemic risk here. Like there was a risk, a very real risk of more bank runs if the feds did not step in. I think that's true. Yeah. Whether there was a systemic risk in, this, in the, the way that we saw in 2008, I think, is open to some debate. With respect to the lobbying, again, this is one of those things where I think reasonable people can make the wrong decision um, because it is a small regional bank. That's true. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of the, the things that are required by Dodd-Frank are, um, you know, onerous. Uh, every quarterly decision is made hand in glove with, um, you know, the examiner in charge. Uh, a lot of big decisions are made with blessings from the government. Um, there are these 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 rules involved, right? And so um, I think that in retrospect, it looks like a bad idea to take this permissive stance because, you know, you're saying, oh, well, this is relatively small. You know, there's there is a lot of like work that goes into surveillance. Maybe they don't need it. Like, I think it's messy. I think there isn't a a clear, obvious, like somebody screwed up here. I think that's true at almost every single point in this failure because it is such a complex failure Mm -hmm. that like there is an urge I think we all have to say, oh, well, you know, they were lobbying not to be like regulated properly. and, And would you look at what happened? And that's probably why the Fed is looking into the Fed's own actions about around this, right? There are a number of um, investigations going on to try to determine precisely what it was that happened. But again, I don't know that that was an obviously wrong call to make. 
So I don't know that it was yeah. like clearly stupid. Do you know what I mean? I, I do. And I, I hope I'm not coming across here. I, I'm truly just trying to understand this because mm-hmm. I, I don't have any strong conclusions drawn other than, yeah, I do think uh, I agree with David Sachs that I think one of the main functions of the federal government is to make sure our banking system is solvent and is <laughs> functional. I think that's a very important function. So at least on that much, we agree. What I would love to understand um, is this. Um, so, so we do know, uh, today it came out that the federal government is launching an investigation, looking at this, this bank run. I've seen reporting that the auditing happened, not just for this bank, but the other bank that failed, uh, the name escapes me. Uh, I apologize. Uh, uh, the auditing had come through and said, yes, we put our stamp of approval on this. Everything's hunky dory just a couple of days before it collapsed. Is that accurate reporting? And if so, like, it seems like that kind of auditing, either it's financial malfeasance or it's not up to the the thoroughness that it needs to be, um, you know, to to ensure that these banks are solvent. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Is, is that uh, something we need to be looking at? Well, I mean, I think there have always been difficulties around audits. Um, and one of the things that I do want to say um, about this, because I haven't I don't I haven't personally reported on the auditing. So I can't independently verify whatever it is you're reading. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can speak sort of generally to it though. Mm-hmm. Um, with Silvergate, uh, the first bank, the first domino, if you will, in these sort of series of bank failures, um, what had happened was they had discovered they needed to restate their fourth quarter results because it turned out that they had had to do some other stuff that meant that they had to move some categories around. And that stuff had happened in the first quarter, but it meant that that they were going to have to restate their financials because it had Oof. it had a backwards effect. Um, that is a problem of auditing that I think is unavoidable. Right. Um, sometimes right. it turns out you know, something happens, it changes, you have to restate. Like that, yeah. that is not unusual. Sure. Um, in the case of Silvergate, which I think is useful because it had a similar problem, um, what had happened there was there was a panic because FTX had failed. And so a lot of people pulled their money out of cryptocurrency. Um, and Silvergate <laughs> was an important um, conduit for cash transactions in the crypto world. So they banked a lot of exchanges. They banked a lot of stable coins. They weren't necessarily holding people's reserves and they weren't um, paying any interest to these folks. Um, but, you know, if you were trying to send dollars between crypto entities, that was the easiest way to do it, not least because they had a 24-hour um, network available. And crypto is 24 hours, whereas the banking system is not. So, like, there were, like, you know, strategic reasons why you would want to use this bank. Um, and then when people like started yanking all of their money, when they got scared because of FTX, they sort of got caught in the same way because again, they had a portfolio of securities that were not scary or weird or even bad. They just had a timing mismatch and like, yes, it is the job of a risk manager to make sure that like, you know, you're covered in these moments. Um, but I will say like before (laughs) Silvergate failed, um, it had already withstood a, a drawdown of like the biggest, I think one of the biggest drawdowns we'd seen since like, I don't know, uh, the Great Depression. Oh. Like they, <laughs> they actually withstood the drawdown fairly well until the very end. Um, 
and like this again, this stuff is difficult to manage. I'm not trying to say that Silvergate ran things perfectly because <laughs> it's gone. So yes. um, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. That's the um, episode title. It's gone. Yep, it's gone. Um, <laughs> but I do think that like as we're thinking about some of these complex financial questions, one of the things that's going on in finance is you're trying to predict the future. And that's right. part of what risk management is, is predicting possible futures. Um, and what we're seeing here is, I think, something that is normal and inevitable in banking, which is that people are not necessarily good at predicting the future, um, mm. even people who are relatively savvy. And so, you know, and I, I hate to say this, but to some degree, bank failures are normal. That's part of the financial system. It's why we have a bunch of things in place yeah. To, yeah. to deal with them. That's why the FDIC is like the most, literally the most wildly successful government program in history, in my view. <laughs> yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as, as we're thinking about all of this, like, I do think it's worth keeping in mind that, like, the simplest explanations are usually not right when it comes to something that's this messy and the systemic. Because um, when it comes to these kinds of predictions, um, it's easy to look back and say, oh, well, they, they should have known the, the Fed was going to raise rates. But the Fed didn't significantly raise rates for a decade. No, no. You know, like, I, I don't know necessarily why you would assume that the Fed would do so unless you had correctly guessed that there was going to be a lot of inflation that was not going to pass right away. Um, and I also don't know that you necessarily would assume that the Fed would be as aggressive about raising rates as they have been or mm -hmm. as aggressive with their target as they yeah. are, have been. So like, there's a lot of sort of like um, guesswork basically that's involved in modeling risk. And if you guess wrong, this is what happens. There are a lot of people that feel that like Powell, there are lives, all the financial analysis I've seen, not all of it, but there's a good portion of the financial analysis I've seen that feels like Powell and the medicine they are, 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 giving the American public or the American banking system for inflation is, is very aggressive and could be counterproductive at this level. There are a lot of like really smart people that believe that. So it's very easy for me to imagine someone like betting, Oh, Powell's not going to keep going down this path. We have all these contraindications. Look at what's happening with Chinese manufacturing. Uh, clearly we need to be thinking in a different direction. That's very easy for me to imagine. And I think it's also worth noting that like one of the reactions that we've seen from some corners of the financial world is they think that because of this, you know, um, series of failures, we're going to see a slowed pace of uh, interest rate hikes yeah. so that the Fed might not be as aggressive, mm. which might be true. I don't know. We're going to find out. <laughs> um <laughs> you know, RIP but, to my CD laddering, but you know, I'd rather <laughs> get my paycheck, I guess. <laughs> So, you know, it's 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 just um, I understand a great deal of the anger at the VCs who are like posting the Mad Max Fury Road stuff, um, because like, <laughs> especially given the way that um, VC culture has behaved over the last decade and the fact that this bank run was essentially caused by like the startup world flunking the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's that's what it was. Yeah. Um, you know, oh I can God. certainly understand some of the anger here. But I think um, it's really important as we're thinking about 
what actually happened and thinking about remedies and how to prevent this happening in the future, that we not let these this sort of like annoyance we might feel with some of these characters um, overshadow um, the sort of more, I'm sorry to say it this way, boring truth of what happened, Yeah, you know? I think all of us, um, I mean, I know Christina and I very strongly agree that it is the right thing to stabilize this particular uh, banking situation here. Um, just speaking for myself, you know, I work in progressive politics. I've personally been very dismayed at the number of people that have the attitude, um, just let the system fail, right? Um, you know, ultimately, like you're you're talking about workers, you're talking about people's homes, you're talking about their paychecks, you're talking about you know businesses not being able to pay the employees for the work they've done. In my view, that's not a very progressive um, um, uh, approach, right? Like wanting uh, a lot of harm for for people that don't have anything to do with the the banking system. At the same time, you know, uh, uh, Ben Collins tweeted something I really, really, really agree with, where it is utterly rational and is utterly fair for people who, you know, when it comes to money for health care, when it comes to money for, you know, uh, uh, true help with housing, right, when it comes to all this pain that's out there for the American people, you know, the answer is like, we're broke. And then when, you know, these VCs kind of cause this mess and, and hearing like cryptocurrency is a factor at this previous bank run, ooh, that makes me even matter. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I think there is a, I think there's a fair level of frustration. And I think there's a reasonable perception by the American people that, you know, normal people are just not the the priority oftentimes. Well, I just want to say a couple of things in please, response to that. Please, um, <laughs> you know, The first is that I think one thing that our government doesn't trumpet and should is how well the American people did off of TARP. Mm -hmm. um, we, we got a lot of money out of that, actually. It turns out uh, rescuing our banks was um, <laughs> immensely profitable for the American people. And so there's a world in which doing this kind of rescue um, potentially gives you the funds to do things like pay off people's student loans for them or, uh, you know, make for uh, a, a better social safety net. That is that is a possible world we could live in if we want to. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing that I want to say here is that, like, one of the reasons the Let It Burn stuff frustrated me was that the likes of uh, these VCs can go to another bank and get a loan. And the average janitor working at this, these companies that isn't going to get paid can't. That's exactly so right. When, you know, you talk about letting it burn, the people who get hurt the worst are the people who are the most vulnerable already. Yep. And I understand the anger. I really do. But like, if you think about it, if you care about people who are vulnerable, sometimes you just have to hold your nose Mm -hmm. And think about ways to um, deal with the fact that maybe, you know, you do have to do some stuff you don't like in order to make sure that those people can continue to get their paychecks. Because this really, like, you know, I live in the Bay Area. This was, uh, there were a lot of people I knew this weekend who were not sure, including me, um, yeah. of what their status was going to be. You know, where they were like, I definitely knew someone who was like worried about her mortgage payment. Like there, 
these are normal people. And I understand that normal people don't have the same kind of megaphone that Silicon Valley VCs do. You know, they don't have like hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, but they are the people who are going to get it in the shorts. So, you know, I, as, as unpopular as the idea of a bailout is in some quarters, I actually would not have hated the idea of the federal government taking over the bank wholesale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, benefiting from its investments. Um, and maybe plowing that money into other things that would serve the American people. And like one thing that's maybe worth mentioning here is that over the last, I don't know, 40 years or so, um, our federal investment in basic sciences um, and tech has declined. And it may not, you know, maybe we don't want to do that through academia anymore. Maybe we want the federal government to be the biggest VC of all. And then, you know, oh. we get the profits. That's something that we can use to fund social programs. Like there are lots and lots of ways to approach this that um, don't necessarily require us to uh, <laughs> to um, you know divide things quite so sharply mm -hmm. in terms of winners and losers. Mm -hmm. I think that's really well said. I've never thought about that. It would certainly. You know, it's very interesting to me that there that there's study after study that say like investing like in a business, a, a VC investing in a business for a woman in her forties, right? Like especially if you look at like the the space for like parent tech, <laughs> like it tends to be a good investment. But because a lot of VCs are very pattern, um, you know, oriented folks, they tend to invest in people that are like themselves. So it's it's easy for me to see see if they had to compete with the federal government on on some of this um i i think that's that is a radical idea and it's a pragmatic idea and those are two of my favorite things in the whole world you've so, weaponized brianna yes I, I have one i guess final thought before we let you go i i, I just want to know like for our listeners what should they be keeping an eye on next as far as stories coming out of this or like what what should we be paying attention to as we continue to follow uh, what's happening with Silicon Valley Bank, uh, RIP. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think one thing to keep an eye on generally is the other regional banks, because those are the mm. ones where I think some of that risk is located. Again, as we talked about, because some of these regulations have been changed and like we could argue, I think that to be real, I think there are reasonable arguments for both, you know, having stronger protections and having looser protections. Yeah. <laughs> like, <it's> yeah. <laughs> I don't know that there's a clear, correct choice here, except in hindsight, where it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, maybe that wouldn't happen. <laughs> um, but so I, I would keep an eye on the regional banks. I know that there's been a, a tremendous flow towards the large, too, too big to fail banks by a lot mm -hmm. of capital because people are spooked. Um, and so there may be other banks that are now in similar positions because of this. Um, on the other hand, maybe the FDIC action this weekend was enough to stem that. And so maybe because, you know, these depositors are going to be getting their money, people are feeling a little safer and aren't necessarily putting all their money in J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because that is another potential outcome here is that we wind up with even bigger big banks um, because that's that's what people feel safe with. So I would keep an eye on the regional banks. I would also keep an eye on the auction. So Silicon Valley Bank is up for auction. Like the assets are up for auction. Oh, the IP wow. is up for auction, all of that. Um, I assume because there were bids that were due on Sunday um, that whatever that auction process was failed. And that's why there was the FDIC bailout. Um, 
that doesn't mean that the, they're not going to do it again. Um, I hear that Apollo uh, Global Management has thrown its hat into the ring, as have some other private equity firms. But I think it's worth noting where the assets for this bank go. Um, not least because, you know, um, again, this is a bank that understands startup risk, I think, better than most banks do. And so if you're thinking about starting a business and you want to get access to some of these loan products, that's the bank. Like there are a couple of other ones that do it, also regional banks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's that's the one that that really like knew what they were doing. And like if somebody else buys the bank and opens up shop again, that I think is going to be helpful to a lot of people who need to take out debt along with their VC investment, for instance. Okay. So that's another thing to watch is how this auction goes and who winds up owning these assets. Um, and like, you know, uh, beyond that, um, it's worth noting that Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, and um, Silvergate were all three major crypto banks. Um, when I say major, I mean, Silvergate was like 90% crypto. I think Signature was maybe like, I don't know off the top of my head, but it was not more than 15%. It might've been as low as 5%. Okay. Um, and similarly, Silicon Valley Bank, the crypto industry was not a major part of their business. It was not the most important part of their business, but it is very difficult for crypto to get banking in the US. Um, a lot of banks are very leery about crypto and I think they just got a lot leerier. And so yeah. <laughs> one thing that you might be watching out for, um, if you're somebody who follows crypto is where the banks, uh, the crypto companies are getting banked now. Um, because I think a lot of that money may move offshore. Um, hmm. interesting. So that's another thing to kind of keep an eye on. Um, and that, you know, there, there are second and third order effects from taking that stuff offshore. Um, both good and bad. I, like, I'm not trying to pretend like, oh, we definitely want it here in America or, oh, no, we have to throw it all the way out. Like, there are consequences either way. Um, okay. It, it is what it is. So I, I think it's, that it's a worth, complicated issue. I hate to be <laughs> this way about it, but it turns out that money is complicated. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, that doesn't totally surprise me because it's the abstracted version of our relationships with each other. That's all money mm. is, you know. Mm, yeah. It's it's in some um, serious way, it is it represents what we owe each other. And mm. so, of course, it is very complicated because human relationships are complicated. Thank you for bringing your controversial views that life and relationships and money are complicated. <laughs> <laughs> to our podcast. I know. <laughs> I brave, brave but true. <laughs> she is standing up for the people. Uh, where can people <laughs> find your writing and your thoughts online if they want to follow up with you, which they will, because it has been amazing to have you as a guest. Oh, thank you. Um, well, so I write for The Verge, um, and I tend to show up there on a fairly regular basis. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot less often these days, but I'm at Ms. Lopato. <laughs> Smart. Um, and I'm also... Um, Lapato at mastodon.xyz for those of you nerds who are on Mastodon. I'll add it to that. We do. Lapato. And that's L O P A T T O. That's right. Awesome. I, I hope you don't mind me saying before we were chatting before the show. I, I'm just a huge fan of your work. Uh, I think if you went through and looked at the number, like every week on Rocket, over what is it, Simone? Like eight years almost. Oh, like we have cribbed so much of your work over <laughs> the years. And, 
have done shows based on your reporting. And um, I, I genuinely, every time I see one of your bylines, I, I click it. I think you're one of the very best reporters over there. So, And yet it took us 428 episodes to get you on. I know. Uh, <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Liz. Have a lovely evening. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Bye, guys. All right. So this episode of Rocket is brought to you by micro.blog. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Blogging I love them. It's still the easiest way to share stuff on the web. And micro.blog is the easiest way to blog. Personal blogging is making a comeback thanks to all this dang disruption in social media. So if you have always wanted to build your own place on the internet to keep and share the stuff you love, micro.blog is for you. Micro.blog is an easy-to-use blogging platform where you can write short or long blog posts, you can share photos and video, and you can even host a podcast. But more than a place to share your stuff, it's also a friendly community of people with a wide range of interests who share and comment via Micro.blog's social timeline, backed by strong community guidelines that are enforced. And because micro.blog is open, you can use your own domain name. You can cross-post to Twitter, Tumblr, and Mastodon. You can also follow and be followed by Mastodon users directly, with conversations threading across both micro.blog and Mastodon. And finally, you can share your RSS feed so anyone can follow you. Micro.blog is different. There are no ads and there's no behind-the-scenes algorithm choosing which posts appear in your timeline. Brianna, I know you have a f- feelings about micro.blog. Do you have anything to share with us today? Well, I can just say if you're looking to uh, have a, a Mastodon instance, something all of us here at Rocket uh, very strongly recommend. Um, it's a really easy way to get on board with that. Also, I just I love the dev, the dev team. Uh, you know, um, uh, 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 Jean uh, from App Camp for Girls, I know she's worked with them a ton. Um, it's just a fantastic company, and I always like to give my money to fantastic people. Wow. How can people do that? Micro.blog hosting starts at $5 per month. Head to micro.blog and sign up for the 30-day free trial and then use the coupon code RELAY and you'll get a special deal. With your standard subscription, you'll get a premium account at no extra charge. That is $5 a month for hosting that includes all of their premium features, including podcast hosting. That's a saving of 50%. 50%. So use the code relay after you sign up for that free trial when you sign up with your subscription uh, and support a cool little company. Our thanks to micro.blog for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. We're a cool little company too. Hey, <laughs> Brianna. Yes. How are you handling this news about the moon? I, I'm really disturbed. I mean, you know, it's, uh, uh, you find out that you can look at a picture of the moon taken on a Samsung phone and it, it might not be so real. Simone, I feel like the, the world is shaking, uh, underneath me. I I feel like my reality veil has been pierced. Dinosaur asteroid level extinction event. Samsung's, uh, space zoom feature has been confirmed for possibly the third time. To be fake, by a definition of fake, which we will go on to discuss. So if you're not familiar with the Space Zoom feature, uh, Samsung advertised it extensively. You point your phone at the moon, notoriously 
every photo that uh, is taken of the moon with a phone is terrible. But with Space Zoom, you could take a photo of the moon and it looks cool. It looks like the moon. You can see things like craters and uh, the other things moon has, uh, veins, shadows. Amazing. With a phone. Who would have thought? Well, uh, as publicized on Reddit by user iBreakPhotos, the way that this works, it, it's a little more complicated than the simple like AI upscaling that people had assumed it was. So this user basically on their computer pulled up an intentionally blurry photo of the moon. There were no, there were no, none of those good moon details that we love to see in the moon were in this photo. It was a blurry photo. And then they took a photo of that photo with their Samsung camera. One might expect from such a photo, even with a powerful space zoom feature, that it would be bad. But the resulting photo, the Samsung phone, added all of the marvelous moon details that we know and love to this photo that had never had those details to begin with, um, casting doubt uh, and shadows into the minds of many. Uh, so Samsung has said, always said, that the, the process involves more than you know, just pasting a moon asset onto your photos. That's not what's happening. It's not like they're pulling a JPEG of a moon and being like, moon details. That's not what's happening. In 2021, it told Input Mag uh, that Space Zoom, quote unquote, it uses AI to detect the presence of the moon and then offers a detail enhancing function by reducing blurs and noises. Uh, they clarified, clarified in quotes in a later blog post, blog post, um, this is a detail improvement engine function that removes noise and maximizes moon details. <laughs> you might notice from all of those words that I just said that they have not in any way described what is happening with the, the moon in photos. Um, but it sure ain't real. <laughs> so I have something to say about their statement. Um, yeah. One of my least favorite things about politics is when a politician says something that isn't necessarily a lie, but it's <laughs> tailored, it's, it's specifically tailored to be misunderstood. I could say, I talk to my friend Simone every single week about Link to the Past, and that would be a statement that would make you think she's played that game. Yes. But it's it's tailored to be misunderstood. <laughs> and that's that's exactly why I think of Samsung's uh, statement in this case. I think they are um I, I, I it's it's they're obviously bringing in more data to like to just put it there. I think there's an ethical discussion to be had about this, but like like the, the statement is just a it's functionally a lie, right? Yeah, you might as well not have said anything. You might as well have said like bread bread is carbs. <laughs> the moon is the moon is fake. I don't know. Um yeah, it's a very very nothing burger statement um which I understand because also this is not like the worst story that is ever going to come out about their company. Um, <laughs> they don't need to go on the record and be like, let, let, we, let, we have to speak our truth about how our moon <laughs> space zoom works like, or else everyone is going to be mad at us. I'm pretty sure this is going to like blow over. Um, but that, you're right that it is very annoying, especially when – the feature is so obviously creating an image that I, I think by any definition of an image of the moon, 
we can consider false because it, it it's adding things that are just not there. And the verge, the piece I read on the verge about this went into an interesting discussion about like what that like in in this case it very clearly is like this is fake. But then also like what will that mean for the future of machine learning? And also when it comes to the moon specifically, like wherever you are on the earth, the moon has those details. We're not getting multiple angles of the moon. Those details aren't really changing. It kind of is fine to add them in because it's not, you're not going to get a radically different moon. Um, The most that might be changing is like the color of the moon, depending on what night it is. So it's not like not real, but it's definitely not real. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Yeah, no, no. I I fully agree with your assessment here. I think there's an interesting discussion to be had here about like deep learning and the machine processes that that go into the smartphones. And, And just to give people a little bit of background on this, you know, when I was in journalism school back in the day, I remember taking like the photography classes and having like in-depth discussions about is it okay to move a, a, a beer bottle that might be on the ground at a, at a news story site uh, to get that photo, right? Is that ethical? That's that's where we were like 15 years ago. Yeah. And, and today, I think if you look at the amount of computation that, you know, both Apple and Google are doing to make your photos look good. I mean, let's be really, really clear. Um, you know, I have a extremely nice mirrorless um, um, camera with a $3,000 lens, right? Mm-hmm. It is a wildly complicated thing to get a shot with the right amount of bokeh in the background and the right f-stop. The way that your smartphone is kind of making these shots happen is a a huge amount of computational photography, right? Like it's doing HDR processes, it's figuring out details. And I think there's a really good discussion to be had here about, well, the skin tone doesn't really look like that, right? Mm -hmm. And in this case, they're literally just taking a texture map and and adding more data on top of that to make your photos look a little bit better um, mm-hmm. for, for a marketing point. Um, so I think like in this one individual case, I don't really have an ethical problem about it. I, I do think that I do think that smartphone photography is going to innately move to a more and more abstract version of reality, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does make sense. I I think I agree with you that like there's nothing at, at worst. This is embarrassing and silly because they made a big deal about how you can take a really cool photo of the moon and it's not the anything that your like your camera is doing it is something entirely like constructed within the phone. So it's embarrassing to kind of use it as this big marketing point. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with it. Cause like I said, those details, that's what the moon looks like. It's not what your camera's seeing, but it's what the moon looks like. That being said, I I guess, yeah, there is, it does kind of raise the question of like, is this a frog in the hot, in, in the, the, the pot of water over the stove situation where, okay, we're, we can be okay with a fake photo of the moon. We're okay with filters on Instagram that make us look 
smoother, much smoother than we are. Unlike the moon, who is being made to look less smooth than she <laughs> appears uh, in this case. Did you just assume the moon's gender, Simone? I did. I like I'm that. so yeah. sorry. No, the moon is a beautiful lady. Robert Hunland did call the uh, the moon uh, a harsh mistress. So I guess there's precedent. And she is. Uh, and that is what our, I would like to clarify that that is our relationship. She is my harsh mistress. <laughs> Um, it's anyway. a great book, by the way. <laughs> so we're okay with this. Uh, we, we've become accustomed to a degree of, of falseness with the photos that we post on social media. It does raise, as you pointed out, long term, this a big brain question of like, at what point does that stop? And I know we're entering that because we just talked about like deep fake pornography a few weeks ago where like that causes, even though those images are entirely false, that causes real-world harm to people who are the subject of it. Um, so it's definitely, I'm not saying the moon being fake in Samsung phones is a slippery slope to like the normalization of deep fake pornography. <laughs> but they're sort of in the same city, I think. They're not neighbors, but they live in the same large metropolis of millions of people. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. What are we going to do? How are we going to hold Samsung accountable for uh, lying about the moon? <laughs> <laughs> well, I already don't buy their products. Well, I guess I do because they make every single television in existence. So, so true. Don't they don't they make the panels in the iPhone, I believe? Um, no, I think this is just this is appropriate. Like I love that they're getting caught on this. I, I just hope it launches a larger discussion about computational photography. And yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think your field needs to be having discussions about, you know, is uh, smartphone photography is is this something you can use in reporting news, right? Mm. Um, are are there ethical things? you need to be thinking about there. Um, That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think there could be a point reached in the future where, the, especially when photographing human subjects, if you're using a smartphone, you should be careful and be wary. Um, good thoughts. Are you ready to talk about screen? <gasps> it's time. Oh, my God. All right. Okay. So, okay. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. So you still have not seen the original screen, right? I still have not. Although okay. that is the one with um Nev oh Campbell. My... Yes. Skeet Ulrich. Yes, Skeet Matthew Ulrich. Lillard. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I was like, who's that hot guy? Yeah, Rose McGowan. <laughs> he looks so yeah. good in that movie. Okay. Uh, he was amazing. Yes. Okay. So they rebooted the franchise a few years ago, is my understanding. Okay. So can I just give you like the ultra quick version of Scream? Uh just just taking you through it. So you had Scream came out, the original Scream. This was the first horror movie where the audience was in on the 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 horror, right? Because the rest of them are asking you to like believe in in this boogeyman uh, or whatever. Scream just asked um, the, the audience to like understand that anyone could watch horror movies and become a killer, right? Um, you were very very much in on the joke. You were aware of the tropes. Mm-hmm. It really rewarded that kind of close examination of horror movies, right? First Scream, absolutely groundbreaking. Second Scream movie, kind of a bad sequel, just being honest with you. It's it's perfectly competent. 
all the Scream movies like meet a certain threshold of being good. Um, but this was, it's just not a, a great film, right? Um, Scream 3 comes out and the ties to Harvey Weinstein and Scream 3 are super underreported because yeah. he, the, the thing with Scream 3 is it's all about a woman, um, basically being sexually assaulted in Hollywood. And that's what like sends the entire, it's what causes the entire Scream franchise to happen, right? Oh my God. He was super involved with that script. And it's all about this producer that's like basically bringing in young women and raping them, right? I did not know that. Um, It's a really, it's really, really weird to watch this movie in the aftermath of Harvey Weinstein. Okay, so then the franchise goes to sleep for a few years, right? Screen 3 is horrible. It's a bad movie. It's the worst by a wide margin. Um, so the, the the series goes to sleep for a while. Then Wes Craven, about 10 years ago, comes forward and does Scream 4. Okay. Scream 4 is, in my view, you should watch it just because Jill Roberts looks so much like Christina, it's freaky. I'm going to Google. <laughs> and she is, I, I can spoil this, she's the ghost face. She's the best ghost face in the history of ghost face. She is amazing. This was Wes Craven's last Scream film because he died not shortly after that. Um, and it's really, really, it's one of the best, but didn't really catch on. Okay. So we all thought Scream was kind of dead. So there's this group called Radio Silence. And they uh, did this great movie starring Samara Weaving called Ready or Not. I um, love that movie. It's that was really, such a good really movie. Good. She, Samara Weaving is awesome, right? So that was successful enough that they were handed the keys to Scream. And they reboot Scream, and basically they have all the older characters like Sydney and Gale and Dewey in it, but it's really, really they're they're just there to like give the franchise like credibility. Mm-hmm. The real core of the story is about uh, Sam and Tara, these two sisters, right? Um, and um, that storyline is going through Scream 6. So the stakes are really, really high with this because Scream 4 very believably could have, like, um, it it did so poorly, despite Wes Craven being involved, a lot of people could feel it it could end this this fantastic series. Scream 5 did very, very well. And Scream 6, they doubled down on everything it's set in new york it's a big budget um they it's the longest time for a scream movie it's over two hours it's got gorgeous chase sequences and it is it is the darkest most intense scream movie of them all and in my view it's probably the best since the original um this movie has made more money than any scream movie to date it's going to be a huge, huge hit, and it really speaks to Radio Silence and their their amazing work here. What one thought about I guess it uh, being so successful is I am very heartened to see movies being successful in theaters again. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I just almost knocked over my ring light. Sorry about that noise if you heard it. Um, but I know that that was something like during the early days of the pandemic, like theaters had been doing not so hot 
even before everyone was stuck inside for almost a year. And I mean, we saw companies like Disney offloading so, so, so much onto streaming platforms. And obviously over the last like year or so, we've covered extensively how that has not really worked financially for these companies. We have Warner Brothers like cutting things, slashing things right and left. We have Disney returning to theaters and it it, it does hurt me to see something like that is not a Marvel movie, even if it's still a franchise movie. Um, obviously Top Gun as well was another, I think, big weather vane in terms of the success of films being shown in theaters uh, that happened this year. But I'm happy about that. Um, and I'm happy that you like it. How did you feel about, because my, my understanding of this series is that it is it has always been extremely meta, even yeah. before that was like a, a word that was constantly thrown around in conversations online because online didn't exist. Um, it's always been like commenting on the genre. Right. And I know part of the discussion about this movie is like, well, how how are they going to keep that conversation relevant and moving forward. So how do you feel about the meta moves and the like genre commentary that this one is making? Well, Scream 6 is a movie they can only do once because the meta is not like Scream 1 is about horror movies. Scream yeah. 2 is about sequels. Scream 3 is about trilogies. Scream 4 is about rebooting. Great. Scream <laughs> 5 is about toxic fandom. So all of them are only ones that you can really do once, right? Right, right. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Scream 6 is not about movies at all. Scream 6 is about the meta of Scream movies. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> because everything here, like, you know, you've got the the original killer's masks that they're all wearing uh, yeah. from the nine previous ghost faces as they're, they're doing this. So... Um, it, it really is. It's it's a bunch of callbacks and references and patterns from previous movies that really leave you guessing, um, set in a completely new place. And I, it's just great. Um, this is, I mean, you know, you can't make Scream 7, though, and have it be, be this again. That would be a really, really bad movie. Oh, well, yeah. Um, Do you have yeah. hopes, I guess, for the future of oh, the yeah. franchise after this? Okay. Yeah. I mean, Radio Silence has proven themselves to be extremely good here. Um, you know, there's... I think where they can go with this is there's been long standing uh, fan demand for a cult of Ghostface uh, oh. because it makes sense in this universe. Like, Stab is the franchise, right? Like, we're on video right now. I nearly put Stab posters behind me. Stab is the fictional version of Scream in the Scream universe. Oh my God. So, um, you know, uh, it's very feasible in this world where stab is as big as it is, that there are a lot of people that would become obsessed enough to become Ghostface, Right. Okay. So I think there are a lot of places they could go with the events that happened at the end of this. I mean, the, 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 the end of this though is like, this is just genuinely one of the best. It's, it's a fantastic horror movie. Yeah. Right. Um, I really enjoyed it. I've seen it four times. I'll probably see it another two or three at least. Amazing. Um, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, how how do you feel about Jenna Ortega? Simone, you will have to to explain. Like, <laughs> she seems to have taken over the internet. Like she every has. single time I turn on uh, YouTube, I've got some YouTube short of her. Don't get me wrong; I like her. She's cool. I 
have no problem with her. She's fantastic as Tara in this film. She's the best actor in this film by a a wide margin. Mm -hmm. Um, But her thing just kind of, I I don't understand that much hype for someone who just seems to be a good horror movie like actress. Can, can you explain that to me? I, I don't know that I can explain the phenomenon. I, so I, I think first became aware of her when Wednesday became super popular, uh, the Netflix adaptation of Wednesday Adams. Um, but it was clear from like how much of a flashpoint that was that people had been fans of her for a long time. And I realized, oh, she's in the, um, oh my God, X, uh, Ty West's X and the, uh, no, I think it's just X. I think she's just an X. I don't know that she's in the sequel to that because um, I'm pretty sure everyone in that movie dies um like there was this like long-standing bastion of fans of her from her work in horror movies um but i might i think the first thing i saw her in was wednesday and i genuinely loved her in that show i did not like that show i did not enjoy wednesday it was not for me i was not the target audience judging by some of the comments that jenna ortega has made in interviews it, she might not be the audience for it either <laughs> um but there is something about her that I find very charismatic and compelling. And when I watched her Hot Ones interview that she did recently, I think part of it is that she seems very... like I have an instinct when I am in a conversation with someone, especially if it's an interview or, say, on this podcast, my energy level goes up and I become very like, whoa, here I am, everybody. Right, right, right. She does not seem to do that and i find that really admirable and it it come it it makes her come across as very very genuine Mm -hmm. and very like uh, in the beginning of that interview she almost seemed a little shy but then as it went on it became clear she was just like not she wasn't trying to impress anyone she and she had like very firm opinions about the things that she had firm opinions about and i was like oh that's an interesting personality especially for a young actress especially for like she's only 22 or something especially for somebody who's in the public eye to have um because i think especially with the prevalence of social media there is a i i think a lot of high profile performers don't necessarily air their strong opinions on things anymore because they don't want to be to to make enemies on social media like and I'm not saying that in like a cancel culture way I'm just saying like it can be kind of a drag to say something and have it be misinterpreted and then have your publicist call you and be like people are talking about this is this a big deal no it's probably not but like it's exhausting and to see her coming across as so apparently like unconcerned and genuine and forthright was like, Oh, you're an interesting personality. Um, and then on top of that, I just find her like very interesting to look at and charismatic. So that is my short explainer on my feelings on Jenna Ortega. (laughs) Okay. Does the fact that she is like extremely, extremely tiny. I mean, I don't know. It's like, I keep seeing all this thirst content for her and it's like, not to say like shorter girls like can't be very sexy, but it's like she looks like a child. To She's me. too young for me you to know? thirst over. She very yeah. accurately portrays a teenager in Wednesday. Right. Yeah. 
I think she's adorable. She's not a thirst target for moi. <laughs> it's very weird. <laughs> it's very weird. Yeah. Um, but no, Scream is back. It's a fantastic film. Please go see it. Please help me make sure we get like uh, many more Scream franchises. All right. <laughs> It'll make me very happy. That's our call to action for you folks. Uh, Brianna, what are you up to this week? What am I up to this week? Um, I am trying to, uh, we have our own uh, fallout uh, for uh, the Silicon Valley bank thing that I can't really talk about. So trying to clean up uh, that mess. um, And I'm trying to get a major polling project uh, off the ground and out the door. I also uh, beat Wo Long uh, yesterday, which I'm very proud about. Congrats. I heard that it's very difficult. Yeah, it's extremely hard. Nice. Um, Yeah, we did it. For normal people, not for me. Not for you. (laughs) (laughs) We streamed it, and um, poor poor, uh, Christina, our social video producer, was playing it. And our challenge was like, let's just beat the first boss in this two hour stream. And she wasn't able to do it. And she took it very well. She was like, this is a learning experience for me. Um, but it looked hard as heck. Um, and I say this is a, a new fan of Elden Ring. It's probably and, not and for that me. boss is much easier than Lubu. So great. <laughs> Love that. Um, I this week, um, I I had a shoot that I was really excited about that got canceled. Um, but other than that. I'm honestly, just, I'm just working on videos. I'll have a video that's probably going out next week. So I am preparing for a very busy week next week of shooting uh, content for Polygon.com's YouTube channel. Um, and other than that, just relaxing and sewing, which is what I do now to relax. I'm a, I'm a domestic goddess. <sighs> Congratulations to me. Brianna, where can we find you online? Uh, just find me online at Brianna Wu on Twitter. You can find me online uh, at Doom Quasar, wherever social media accounts are found, and at youtube.com slash polygon. Uh, you, if you are a boostie, are about to hear our discussion of The Last of Us, Yay. the HBO TV show, and the video game. <laughs> Nobody yell at us. Um, uh, and thank you so much for being a boostie. Uh, if you want to learn more about how you can do that, check out relay.fm slash membership. Uh, thank you so much to all our listeners. If you enjoy this show, please uh, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's one way that uh, helps other people find the show, even if you're not directly financially supporting us as our boosties do. Thank you so much to everyone who has done that. I think that's it for this week. This episode of Rocket is terminated. 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 It's as if Christina were here. (laughs) 